Welcome to episode 77 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the Associate Editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the Culture Editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. So today we're going to be talking about the prestigious 2022 prize for women in fiction. It's now in its 27th year. It's a prize that honours outstanding, ambitious, original fiction written in English by women, but women from all over the world. This year's shortlist incorporates a broad range of themes, ghosts, sisterhood, identity, mental illness, gender violence, the power of nature in global settings from Antarctica to Trinidad. There are six women on the shortlist. They're being judged by a panel, which is made up of Lorraine Candy, Anita Setti, Dorothy Coomson and Pandora Sykes. Yes, and the chair of the judges is Marianne Seacart, who's here with us today to tell us about the shortlisted authors, alongside her fellow judge, Dorothy Coomson. Marianne needs little or no introduction as a highly visible and prolific broadcaster and journalist. She served on The Times for 20 years in all kinds of roles, including as assistant editor, and her now best-selling book, The Authority Gap, Why We Still Take Women Less Seriously Than Men and What We Can Do About It, is, as usual, a groundbreaking and important piece of analysis and work. Dorothy Coomson is herself a global best-selling author whose books have been translated into 30 languages. And in 2021, she was featured on The Power List as one of the most influential black people in Britain. She hosts the Happy Author podcast to encourage new writers. And her latest book, I Know What You've Done, is a Sunday Times bestseller. Welcome to you both. Very nice to be on. Thank you for having us. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. It's great to have you both on. Let's start by talking about the prize itself. We're going to talk about the individual authors in a moment. But Marianne, as you're the chair, give us an overview of the prize. I know it's sponsored by Bailey's and Audible, but I think I will always think of it as the Orange Prize. It's been around for a very long time. It has. And it was first set up in a year in which the Booker Prize shortlist had not a single female writer on it. And Kate Moss, who's the founder and several other female authors got together and said, this is completely ridiculous. It's basically just blokes judging blokes and we need to do something about it. And so they set up the Women's Prize for Fiction. Thankfully now uh, that hasn't happened since. And, and we do have many female authors on the Booker Prize shortlist and just now and then winning the Booker Prize as well. <laughs> I was going to say. Women do win the Booker Prize. Uh, but nonetheless, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great prize because, as you said, it's for women writers all over the world. They only have to write their novels in English to qualify to submit themselves to the Women's Prize for Fiction. And Dorothy will confirm, we have read a vast array of incredibly varied and brilliant books over the last six months or so. And we've narrowed it down to a short list of six, all of which I would really commend to you. We haven't yet decided who's going to win, but that will be fun. So how many entries were there? There were about 175 submissions. So we have basically written off the past six months. I've done nothing but read novels, almost nothing. Um, barely seen a friend, barely watched TV. Every spare moment has been spent either reading or listening to a novel. But I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Do you literally read every single book cover to cover? Or do you start chapter one of a book and think, no, this just is not going to work? <laughs> Pretty much every book cover to cover, because... 
uh, publishers are only allowed to submit, I think it's two or three, depending on the size of the publisher each oh. year. So they're already self-selected. It's, it's the very best fiction that they've published that year. So uh, it would be odd to think after 10 pages, oh no, I'm not going to bother to read any more of this. Also, it wouldn't be fair to the writer. But I can imagine uh, with the quality of the judges and you, you two as well, that the discussion is going to be very heated. People presumably go into bat very passionately for the book that's spoken most to them. Yeah, I was going to say, Dorothy, it's really because you yourself, you know, you've got a novel coming out in August called um, My Other Husband. And you're, you know, you're known as the queen of the big reveal. So I'm really interested in what you, you know, who's who's got a reputation for, for unputable, downable thrillers. You know, do, it must be really hard for you to sort of step back from that. It's not actually because um, everybody on the judging panel and every judging panel for the Women's Prize are people who love reading. And we are very committed to books and promoting other women and their writing. So we don't, I mean, I've always been a reader. I've always been a huge reader. Since I was very little, I have read lots. I mean, my house is full of books. If there's anything that there is an abundance of, apart from dust and dog <laughs> hair, it must be books. Um, so, I, I mean, I love reading. So I, it wasn't a chore. And I am able, because I used to be a journalist as well, I still am a journalist, always will be in my heart. I used to be an editor as well. So I, I was always very able to step back from something to take the emotion out of it and to read it um, and judge it on its merit. Because when I am writing a book, it's very hard for me to read other people's books. But with this, because I had to do it, I could I could basically step back and immerse myself in it and enjoy it. And as Marianne said, do nothing else but read. There, there is something rather wonderful about sitting on a weekday by the Arga reading a novel and not having to feel guilty about it because it's work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it must have been amazing for you, Marianne, this particular year to have been chosen as the chair of this, because your book, The Authority Gap, has just caused such a kind of big noise, you know, just really looking at, at what's still going on in the workplace and how shocking it is that women are still being so totally sidelined. So did you just jump at this? It's a subject really close to my heart because I have a whole chapter in the book about men just not really letting what women say or do into their lives. Not all men, but some men. So there are statistics that show, for instance, when it comes to books, that women will read roughly 50-50 books written by men and books written by women, whereas for men, the ratio is 80-20 on average. So they will read four books by a man for every book by a woman. So it's not just that they're thinking that women's writing isn't as good as men's, they're not even reading it in the first place. And that's something I really wanted to change. So when I was asked if I would chair the Women's Prize judges this year, I said, yes, but in that case, let's do a campaign to try to encourage more men to read these fabulous novels. And so that's what we're doing this year is uh, we're getting a whole a whole group of male writers and novelists to recommend their favourite novels by women to other men. Because one of the things I write about in my book is that men are much more likely to take other men's views seriously than women's views. So if it's just me saying, oh, come on, guys, you know, you're really missing out. Read these books by women. They'll think, oh, you know, she's just banging on again. Whereas if other men say it, if Ian McEwan says it or Andrew Marr or Howard Jacobson say, you've got to read these books by women. They're fantastic. Men are more likely to listen to them. Uh, Ed, can I put you on the spot? What was the last novel by a woman you read? Can't remember. <laughs> there you go. Good, Ed. Good answer. Good answer. 
But that's partly because the only books I read are by Mick Heron or Lee Child. <laughs> but then why, Ed? Open, open your horizons. Because open I have a, I suffer my own crisis of masculinity. Yeah. And well, one Lee, of the things Lee Sorry. Child makes me fantasise about being a real man. Well, funnily enough, Lee Child, and so we've asked all these male authors to recommend books by women, and, and Lee Child says there are some fantastic women writing thrillers every bit as good as the ones I write. So maybe have so a look at the recommendation. Well, I, think that's a really, I, I think that makes your point, Marianne. That is a really good point. I mean, I was going to try and sort of do a statistical thing and say that men, I suspect, read less fiction than women anyway, so that might skew statistics. But it is a very, really good point that if I read an article, if I opened you know my financial times weekend which i obviously am devoted to and saw uh, a list of authors recommending women authors and lee child recommended a women's author i would probably read her because it's basically i read fiction to kind of escape my humdrum dull boring life one of the things i've always said i've said this for years and is that it needs to start young and whenever i give presents to boys particularly that are books I like to give books as presents I always give them books by women but also starring girls with girls as the main character because if it starts from a young age that these boys are getting used to a girl a female being the main character in a book they don't start when they get get to adulthood they don't see anything wrong with reading stuff about women and because that's the other thing you know Women's books, books by women, are often dismissed as being about one particular thing. And, you know, I used to write romantic comedies and they are dismissed across the board by everybody, women and, and men. But I used to get emails from all over the world from different men saying, oh, I really enjoyed your book. Or oh, your book made me cry. Or oh, your book had a really nice, happy ending. And it, it wasn't a problem for them to start, sort of tell me that they enjoyed my books. Um, but I'm sure it'd be a problem to tell their mates down the pub. So let's let's get on to the the your the, the shortlist. Tell us about there's six women on the shortlist. One of them's been on this podcast, Elif Shafak. Elif Shafak, The Island of Missing Trees, Louise Erdrich, The Sentence, Lisa Allen Agostini, The Bread the Devil Needs, uh, Ruth Azeki, The Book of Form and Emptiness, Maggie Shipstead, The Great Circle, Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. Uh, Elif Shafak, who's Turkish British, is the only only finalist with any British connection, isn't she? All the others are American or Canadian, Trinidadian. New Zealand. Yeah. All over the world. I mean, all over the world, people write in English. So that's just how it happened to turn out this year. Yes. I mean, they've all got, they all seem to have incredibly interesting backgrounds as well. Not all of them by any means are full-time writers, are they? Which makes it very interesting. Yes. Ruth Zeki is a Zen Buddhist monk, as well as being a writer, which is rather fabulous. And Lisa Allen Agostini really struggled to get this novel published and still by the time she was shortlisted didn't even have an agent so that's a real fairy story isn't it and it's such a great book the, the one of the things you've got to remember is though um it's very hard to be a full-time novelist it's it's virtually impossible i mean you you are very fortunate if you can just be a novelist and i speak with some experience on this <laughs> um it is it's, you know novelists are paid very little we're paid a very small amount so everyone has to do anything else and I've always had done two jobs um in my time as a, my career as a writer so you know every single person on that shortlist has put a lot of blood sweat and tears into their books which is and it shows I think the books themselves kind of selected themselves didn't they in the end 
Mm. They kind of, they, from long list, down to the long list to the short list, I think they selected themselves in the fact that they were all so different and they all offered something completely different about the human condition. I want to ask a series of stupid questions now, please. Since um, I was going to ask whether or not you thought uh, the women's prize to fiction could ever be made redundant, but I think you've sort of answered that by, first of all, exposing my own considerable uh, ignorance and prejudice. But uh, I think you've made a lot of points. But there are a couple of things I'm interested in. One is a sort of counterintuitive thing is, would you ever, do you think there should, would ever have, um, you'd ever have a male judge on the judging panel? Good question. Oh, thank you. We did think actually of having a parallel male judging panel uh, because we wanted to have the campaign this year to persuade more men to read books by women. And we did think of having a male judging panel. Now and that then we would be a separate one. Exercise to compare the short. Yes. But instead, we thought actually it's easier simply to ask male authors, what are your favourite books by women and what would you recommend other men to read? I don't know about the whole having a man on the on the judging panel. I, I mean, as Marianne said, it's not up to me. I, I wouldn't do that because the whole spirit of it is women supporting women. That's what yeah. I think the, the prize was set up for and the prize and that's how it's continued. My impression is that there are many more women working in publishing than men. So why do you think it is, as it were, that one still has to fight for space for women authors and women writers? I don't think these days, and it's very recent, but I don't think these days women do have to fight for space as much as they used to, women writers. And in fact, you know, there's been the odd newspaper article recently saying, where are all the young male novelists? Yeah, they're, they're completely, I'm sorry, because I have to jump in. I'm sorry to speak over you, Maria, but those are completely disingenuous articles. They are completely <laughs> based on really extrapolated statistics that are just, I mean, I've read those articles and I always roll my eyes and think, oh, you really have looked at a tiny, tiny little statistic and gone, oh, look, on this one day in this millennium, there's been a thing where there's been... Um, find more women than men in the charts and therefore the whole the world is coming to an end and all the men the poor men are being shunted to the side and that is not the case it's it's not fair to say that women have struggled for space but we have struggled to be taken seriously and to get the same um, advances and people who work in publishing to get the same payment as men. Till recently we've heard a little bit less about it recently but women were very much shoved into a chick lit category weren't they you know the whole way the books were printed and presented was very very different from a male book i.e don't but this is not literature and, and yet if you read uh books by say david nichols look at one day you know incredibly yes. popular uh, book in effect of romantic fiction you know it's all about a relationship between a boy and a girl who grow you know and goes back every year to their relationship and how good or bad it is if that had been written by a woman it would have been packaged as chiclet and yet because on. it's written yeah. by a man it's taken more seriously but it's nothing wrong with being packaged as chiclet i have to say i have i love chiclet and as, <laughs> as i did i have made i you know i have made it clear my views i i love commercial fiction but yes you're right marianne it wasn't it's that thing you just said about being taken more seriously because it was written by a man yeah and look at someone like nick hornby who writes about yeah. you know particularly male obsessions like football and record collecting and that sort of thing and he's not dismissed as trivial and you get male novelists writing about the minutiae of domestic life 
uh, like Knausgaard, for instance. Yes. And, you know, this is yes. apparently a masterpiece. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if a woman yes. does it, it's just trivia. Ah. And Dorothy, you alluded to diversity in the publishing industry. I mean, there are prizes for diverse authors, but that is a, another area of publishing that needs massive promotion and attention. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very big subject. It's, I don't know if you've got time to it. But yes, it's, I am one of the few people who has had a very long career in publishing um, and been very successful with it. And I know that people coming up behind me, and this is why I'm always trying to help writers, um, new writers, they've been told, oh, we don't need you. We've got Dorothy Coombson or Dorothy Coombson's doing that as a black person. So we don't need a book by you. But, you know, thankfully, it seems to be changing. It's not changing very fast. The statistic has gone up from 1% of books published are by a person of colour to 2%. So yes, we've had a, a huge increase, an increase, but it's literally 1% of the whole market. But I think what Bernadine Evaristo was doing, she came on the podcast and told us all about it. She did that brilliant thing where she re, was republishing a lot of brilliant forgotten work and, you know, by black authors. And they were absolutely fantastic, that series of six. I think she started on the fiction now. Yeah, but there's so many new authors as well. Yeah. Um, authors who are who are new and up and coming. And this is the thing, this is what I mean. I've been doing it for a long time, so I have seen. It, is, it has been really great to, to see other young black women, young other authors of colour coming up and getting publishing deals. But again, it doesn't just stop at publishing deals. And this is the thing with women in publishing as well. You might be given a publishing deal, but your advance isn't going to be necessarily as much as a male author, and then there's the marketing budget and how you're pushed and how you're marketed. And when you go out, when the publishers go out to the bookshops and to the supermarkets who are huge sellers of books, you know, whether they're going to be accepted and taken. Because the whole thing about covers and and how books by women and men are, are packaged, it's not just on the publisher it's a lot of it. They have to get the retailers to buy into it as well. And the retailers go on what people buy. Seeing a sticker on there, seeing that someone else has recommended it makes a huge difference to how they perceive that book. And, you know, we have read 175 books and distilled them down to six. So these really are the very best (laughs) books written by women this year. The best novels. We can guarantee that. You will enjoy every one of the books on this shortlist. So we haven't talked about your book, Marianne, really. We've alluded to it on occasion, but the book is called The Authority um, Gap. Why We Still Take Women Less Serious Than Men. But the bit I'm interested in is what we can do about it. What can we do about it? Well, I've, I counted the other day. I've got 140 suggested solutions in the last <laughs> chapter. And the reason there are so many is that each instance of the authority gap, you know, you get talked over in a meeting or you make a point and no one takes any notice. And 10 minutes later, a man makes exactly the same point and it's treated like the second coming. You know, each instance <laughs> is, is, is incredibly annoying at the time, but it's not career ending. But what happens is that they roll up like compound interest over the course of a working life to create this immense gap in opportunity and and therefore achievement between women and men. And therefore the solutions also have to be quite small ones like 
you know, notice if you're interrupting women more than men and try and stop doing it. <laughs> notice if when you walk up to a man and a woman standing together, you automatically address the man first and then try and change. Um, so I've got lots of solutions for us as individuals, as partners, as parents, as colleagues, but also for employers and for teachers and for the media and for the governments, because it is really systemic. It goes all the way through society. There are big things we can do. There are small things we can do. But the most important thing, I think, is to recognize that however liberal or intelligent or even female we are, the chances are we do harbor this unconscious bias against women. And once we recognize that we've got this unconscious bias, we don't have to feel ashamed of it because it's unconscious, you know, it's not our fault. And we can't really put a lid on it, but we can correct for it when it arises in our brains. And that's what I'm asking us to do is just to be much more aware and correct for it when we see it sort of breaking out into our behavior. Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, I, you gave such a good talk on it that I came to and you did you did have the room absolutely electrified. You could see every man in the room going, oh, no, oh, no, I know I do that. I know I well, do I that. Never, I never talk <laughs> over you on the podcast, Charlotte. <laughs> no, never, never, Ed. Absolutely never. <laughs> Thank you, Charlotte. <laughs> Well, I think huge good luck with it. And just and thank you so much for coming on. Ed, you'll have to read some as well. <laughs> read some thrillers by women, Ed, honestly. <laughs> I will send you a list, Ed. There are so many, so many fantastic, yeah. fantastic. I'm only reading ones recommended by Lee Child. <laughs> oh, okay. There you see, he only listens to other men. We'd love to know. Um, obviously, we'll announce the winner when you we know who it is. But we'd love to know how you get on as well with what the men recommend. So, so yes. keep us posted with that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. See you Bye. later. Next week, we're also going to be talking about books because Charlotte and I are going to be recording live at the Hay Festival. We've got a great plan lined up. We're going to be talking to three women authors. We're tackling the to topic of protecting our planet and climate change. We're going to be talking to the former nun and prolific author Karen Armstrong about her new book, Sacred Nature, to the novelist Jessie James about her novel, The High House, and to Ellen Miles, activist and guerrilla gardener, who's using TikTok to draw attention to her book, Nature is a Human Right, Why We're Fighting for Green in a Grey World. With three such completely different approaches to the issue of climate change on our planet, it promises to be a fascinating discussion. So do join us at Hay next Sunday. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. But don't forget that the latest edition of Country and Townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and Waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with the 2022 edition of Great British Brands. We can be found at countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, with all the latest news on interiors from Carol Annette. And just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter and to the Great British Brands Monthly. We love your feedback, so keep it coming to charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week.